Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hi there podcast fans, I'm Tom Gibbs. Welcome to Telegraph Audio Football Club. Today, have Liverpool now sat their most challenging exam and can they finally clinch their winning the Premier League A-level? Or are the sophisticates of Manchester City just too clinical and ready to make it back-to-back top-flight international baccalaureates? We reflect on the Premier League weekend in which Spurs thrive one more time despite the absence of Harry Kane, Manchester United get lucky against West Ham and Chelsea and Arsenal look to snap out of the funk and clinch Champions League spots. Plus, a review of the Continental Football Weekend, including some shirt-swapping drama in Italy and another dip into Dino's fun bag. Let's take you now into the audio recording facility where I'm joined, as always, by Mina Rizuki. How are you, Mina? Oh, hello. I'm good, thank you. You started off with me. How of surprising. Of Why not? Why not? <laughs> I always feel like I get caught off guard and then I get shy. <laughs> well, I mean, you often crash the intro of someone else, so I'm giving you no chance to do that whatsoever today. I still do it. You'll, you'll see. <laughs> You're just keen. You're just excited to be here, which is good. Always. Sat next to Mina, it's returning hero, Sam Dean. How are you, Sam? I'm good. I also am keen. I think I built my entire career on keenness so let's keep that going from you're looking up for it you're sat forward in your chair ready to chat about football well I'm in JJ's chair so I feel a bit I'm not quite got my surroundings Mm. yet but um, I'll try and I'll try and have a dossier I haven't got a dossier either Um, there's there's something even better from Sam just you wait Mm. Joining him, another returning hero, Charlie Eccleshare. How are you, Charlie? I'm well. How are you? I'm very well. It's been a little bit of uh, time since we've had you in here. What's happened since in your life? I've done a lot of reflecting um, <laughs> on how I can improve, what I've done wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you've given me some very helpful feedback. It's <laughs> very brutal feedback, but uh, yeah, so but we go again today. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's start with the ongoing race for the Premier League title. Five years and one day since Steven Gerrard fell over in tragicomic circumstances. It was another big test passed for Liverpool. Seeing off Chelsea, what did we make of this game, Sam? I thought Liverpool were really very good. Um, we've seen in the last few weeks they've sort of had to rely a bit on emotion and a bit on moments of class without delivering great performances. But I thought this was 90 minutes pretty much of complete control, barring those two hazard chances in the space of two minutes after Salah scored his worldie. Um, but yeah, beyond that, I thought Liverpool played really well. They seemed to be sort of all clicking again, particularly going forward. Mane had some 
good moments as well as Salah. Firmino obviously did his usual thing, popping up. And it just felt like, I don't know, it, it, I don't want to apply too much significance to these things, but I suppose that's kind of what we do as a job. But it, it felt like a significant emotional victory. And you saw Klopp pumping his fist at the end doing his usual thing. And it just felt like, okay, that was the big game. Chelsea at home, in terms of the fixture list, that was the big one. They've come through that and not, they're not like they scraped through that. They've absolutely blasted their way through that. And that was a real statement of, yeah, okay, let's, let's, let's push on from here. Let's get over this big hurdle and, and see what happens next. And there's sort of the excitement's there. There are very different propositions in Manchester City. They seem to be winning their games in quite a different way. But would you say they're now beginning to look almost as unbeatable as City, Mina? I'm not sure about that. I do think that they are playing with quite a lot of confidence. And um, and I, I thought this was actually quite interesting because I disagree in the sense that I thought their first 45 minutes wasn't that great. Um, what they are, though, is a much more exciting prospect to watch than Man City, simply because you actually don't know what they're going to do. And they are this sort of unpredictable side. You don't know whether they're going to have an off day. You don't know whether they're going to blast you with their pace and power and or Salah's going to deliver a rocket. But what I thought was so interesting was the fact that, you know, the first half, I did think Chelsea had their chances. I did think Chelsea were quite interesting to watch. Um, but it was what what Liverpool did in the second half. It was the courage, the fact that they pushed up their lines and really just tried to dominate just one half of the pitch or always one quarter. So it's always one side that they tried to dominate and then overwhelmed with huge courage, you know, huge players trying to go forward all the time and attacking and attacking, trying to win back. I thought the midfield was particularly interesting because you had players who were either trying to win back possession and close down uh, the opponent or delivering such as Henderson, whether it be a perfect assist or actually running so that he creates space for Salah or whoever whomever it was. So I thought that the fact that, you know, this is a kind of, we're going to win this. So there seems to be an edge about them now. Um, whereas before you're a little bit like, oh, I don't know, there seems to be quite, you know, few gaps in the middle. This is a case of like, they seem to really believe in themselves. And if they can win this match, then the others are fairly easy, I would it, say. It is two kind of quite contrasting teams and approaches at the moment, isn't it? Liverpool feel like they've got all this emotion, a little bit more of the momentum, maybe, whereas City are just getting it done in an incredibly professional way. Whose side are you on, Charlie? Who's going to come out on top here? I don't know, but I think it's interesting with Liverpool. I can't remember a team at that sort of level shifting so much from one season to the last. If you remember last season, they were this kind of, obviously very effective, but slightly comical. I mean, they won, what was it, 7-6 against Roma to to reach the Champions League final? I mean, it was just like chaos. And now they're so controlled. They've become, like yesterday was a 2-0, and 2-0 is, is, I always associate that scoreline with Jose Mourinho teams. To me, that's like the perfect scoreline. It's you're controlled, you haven't had to do too much, but you're not really in trouble. They just look like they know exactly what they're doing now. Um, and, And that's why... That you know they've managed to stay with a city team that <laughs> seem to basically win every single game. Um, you look at the fixtures and Liverpool have the much easier games, but obviously it's not in their hands anymore. I just think as well with um, just building on something Mina said there, what Liverpool have done, what Klopp's done really effectively was after that Spurs game. I think everyone identified that the midfield area just wasn't really working. Mm. That sort of Vinaldum Henderson, Milner was just kind of pure stodge and it just <laughs> it needed something. Yeah, I, I, and, I remember wanting Shakiri for Everton. I was like, bring him on, do something. Yeah, exactly. And he's managed to to shake that up a little bit and obviously Henderson's playing a bit further forward and you have to adapt to win titles and they're doing that. So it, it will come down, it looks like, to those City, um, those games against Spurs and United. It does feel like... Um, Every every title winning season, there tends to be like 
a few moments that stand out. I was like, great goal. Yeah, Makeda <laughs> or something, you know, a great, a great goal or a sending off or a penalty save, that kind of thing. Salah's goal felt like that. It had it had that sort of significance to it and that as a moment of... Instead of the Southampton one a little bit as well, I thought yeah. Salah. And the own goal, the, uh, yeah, that... that. The Spurs own goal. Oh, is that what you meant by the Salah? Sorry, the Salah goal yesterday against Chelsea. Yeah, but yeah. I think that Spurs own the um, the late winner against Spurs as well had that mm. feeling. Mm. The, Liverpool um, have had loads of these moments of just like you know yeah. the drama all sort of comes up and culminates in that one bit. And the then, Van Dijk Origi. I mean, they've had so many yeah. that those crazy moments. And City have had precisely zero. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was thinking back to you know I was thinking of each title race in recent years and you know those moments you can think of. When City won in 2014, they didn't have any moments either. They just the, the iconic moment of that title win was Gerard falling over for Liverpool mm. City didn't that's harsh have... on Christian Ball I think so <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but City didn't have they sort of just motored through that and just sort of you know steady steady but that's... win it and then because Liverpool collapsed whereas it seems to all be all the drama's coming from the red side of the title race I think that you know sometimes like you know City fans get upset when we say stuff like you know this is kind of boring and I and I was trying to say earlier I think there's no greater honor than being you know a fan of a boring team because in so many ways that means that you know your team is that good that you don't even need to watch them because they're just going to walk all over their opponent I don't remember the last time I watched Juve in the league if I didn't have to write about it you know it hmm. is it, it's for me it's a little bit dull I don't know whether Real Madrid <laughs> um, fans used to watch any of their Champions League matches but you know it's that kind of it gets boring and I think that's what what City do is the set in the sense that you know that they don't need to have any big moments. They're not necessarily going to do anything overwhelming. They're just going to control the game and grind it out. And the opponent always looks terrified. While it's a little bit more exciting to watch Liverpool because it's a case of you don't know how they're going to play. You don't know whether they're going to emotionally power through and have like this amazing moments, whether it be the Salah goal, whether it be a Van Dijk tackle, or whether it's just going to be craziness and they're going to drop points. You don't know and that's why it's so much more fun to watch them but at the same time if you're their fan you don't feel that same reassurance that you feel if you're a City fan but I think that slightly disguises though how consistent and steady Liverpool have actually been because yes there have been these moments but they've also just won a lot of games by sort of two line score lines they've conceded so few goals and if you're a Liverpool fan and I know our correspondent Chris Baskins alluded to this and you've been brought up on comedy goalkeepers and these games (laughs) where you know like where you think you're going to win and then you have it snatched away from you because your goalie's done something silly to then suddenly have someone like Alisson and someone like Van Dijk and to just feel that security I think has been such a relief for them oh, God, and, and even like be. I say compared just as recently as last season when you're, when you're winning Champions League ties 7-6 <laughs> to, 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 <laughs> to be winning games 1-0, 2-0 I think is, has, that's been the foundation and then these other moments have been you know just kind of additional to that Yeah that's true What do we think of City's performance against Crystal Palace it seemed to me just exactly what we were talking about, an exhibition of their utter professionalism in their race for all these different trophies. Um, well, let's see. By half time, they had, what, like nearly 80% possession, uh, over 330 accurate passes to Palace of 71. I mean, <laughs> I, I just feel like I don't need to tell you anything more than that. <laughs> I, it, it's just bizarre because I think when you look at Palace and you think of Zaha and you think of Juan Bissaka, who I... I genuinely think is one of the greatest fullbacks, like, you know, at least coming up anyway. And the fact that they couldn't get on the ball and they look genuinely terrified of the opponent who isn't necessarily like firing from all cylinders. They always look controlled. But I think it's strange. It's almost like their reputation just intimidates the opponents now. And again, this is a great thing you have. It's what you have when it's Barcelona and Real Madrid in the Champions League. Their opponents are always terrified, even if they are having a bad game, because it's Messi's team and it was Ronaldo's team. And... 
And that's what City have. It's that reputation of they just need to appear and everyone trembles. But they're also just so good that you, you have no other option but to sit back and try and defend. Like Palace beat City. I mean, if any team was going to be unafraid of them, it would be Palace because they've already gone there and taken three points from the Etihad. You look at and you know the players they've got and the fact that they're you know they're safe. They basically had a free hit this weekend, and obviously Roy's not the most expansive manager in terms of his style of play. But there was every reason to think Palace could have a go at this one. Yet they weren't allowed to because City just controlled the game so well. And do you think that they genuinely looked like they were up for it to try <laughs> to give it a go? I think they were until they, the first goal went in. The problem is against the, a first goal so important in a game like that. I think especially Palace. One of these myths that Selhurst Park's a hard place to go, it's actually a really easy place to go. <laughs> they honestly one of the most hospitable ground. They've got one of the worst home records of any team in the league. Um, and a big part of the reason that is when the onus is on them, they struggle a lot more. So they needed something, they needed to go ahead and have something to protect. I felt as soon as City scored, it was like, this is going to be really, really hard because they're going to have to push forward and leave gaps. And that's what happened. A final question on the title race. Are you enjoying this title race? Because it's leaving me a little bit cold and I'm not sure why. I'm not sure whether it's slight football fatigue or it's something about it just isn't that enjoyable at this point. What, what's my problem is the question I'm asking. Maybe it's the, in recent weeks anyway, the lack of undulations in that both teams have basically been winning every game. I mean, I know the Leeds change hands loads of times this season, but a big part of that is, is a kind of game in hand differential and that's what's been happening the last few weeks I think you want a few more twists and turns and a bit more vulnerability I think the problem is both the, I mean that points tally is just it's crazy what those both those teams are on and I think you'd like a few more upsets um, that, that would be the ideal I think have you secretly started supporting one of them me? No, mm. no, not in the slightest. Are you feeling a bit of anxiety? <laughs> no, I've rededicated to QPR after a thumping 4-0 victory against Swansea on Saturday. <laughs> okay. that's, that's where the real excitement is this year. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Good title race or not? I think Liverpool are overwhelmingly shouldering the burden of making it interesting. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> it does feel like all the drama is coming from them rather than City, which makes it slightly less compelling, I think, as a from a neutral perspective. Is City going to be something we look back on and think, oh, we didn't appreciate this at the time, though? I don't know. I bet, like, in 20 years' time, my kids would be like, wow, you were a football journalist at the time, City got 100 points and then 98 points and beat Liverpool. But I, I, said, I said this last week and we actually got a bit of um, got a bit of flack for this, so I'm reluctant to say it again in any sort of, any sort of conviction, but they just, they don't get, they don't stir the, mm. stir the emotions I, that the way that you'd expect a team that, scores that many goals and wins this many games to do. I think as well because when in the Champions League their kind of continued failure in the Champions League sort of exposes this that when things go against them it feels like there aren't enough of those really stirring comebacks you know when things go against them they struggle they picked up one point from losing positions all season and obviously part of that speaks to the fact that they're just never really behind so you, I think you want vulnerability you want weakness you know those are the teams you really Cling on to, and they. Hey, City they are exciting that. in the Champions League because you know <laughs> because you, they're vulnerable. Yeah, or I, you know what it is. It's not even just. I mean, you're, I agree with you in the sense that it's sometimes almost nice to have a weakness about it, but it just seems always so perfectly controlled. Mm. It's like when you watch Barcelona in their heyday. It's it was just a little bit boring because you just felt like they were just going to dominate possession. The other team's not going to have a whimper. 
Whereas, you know, you watch Real Madrid and even though that they were winning everything too, obviously they are a glorious team in their own right, you never knew whether Pepe was going to put in a tackle and get sent off, whether Sergio Ramos was going to score a last-minute header, whether, you know, Bale was going to be played or not. It, there's always some sort of off-pitch drama as well, which just doesn't seem to happen with City. Everything is so we love nice. we, we love sport for human drama. I mean, there's a reason that Tiger Woods was... You yeah, know, that, that's one of the greatest stories we're going to see in sport for a long, long time because of the lows and the you know the lows that are followed by the highs. Whereas Liverpool have got that because they've got a twenty-nine year wait for the title and they've had all these slip-ups and they've had these various. You know, I'm not comparing the two as a comeback mm. sense, but in terms of there's a weight to it and a certain sort of emotiveness to it, which I would say City being, you know, uber slick, uber wealthy, they've done everything right. It's just great, you know. This, if, if you have loads of money, have loads of good players, and a great manager, you're going to win the league. Terrific. It's not, it's not quite the same emotional resonance as, as Liverpool. Well, also, and we, we were brought up kind of on United and their title wins, and you think Steve Bruce and obviously Solskjaer at the new camp. You know, you think of these late dramas, and United would make really heavy weather of a winning titles and b on a on a micro level beating teams that they should really have beaten. So they would have to kind of score two in stoppage time and. <laughs> City would just never be that careless. You know, if they were playing that sort of team at home, they'd be 3-0 up with goals in the 27th, 41st and 63rd minute and would just then bring on three really good players. They'd all be the same goal. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All all, all the pullback and the kind of, yeah, swept low finish. Well, Arsenal's Invincibles left me a bit cold, so maybe I just don't like good football. (laughs) Afraid so. I I don't like it either. (laughs) Let's move on to the race for the Champions League. Three games and three wins for Spurs at their new stadium. I still believe it's uh, still called the Naming Rights Stadium. Uh, (laughs) The move seems to have given them the boost uh, that they hoped it would rather than uh, any uh, teething problems. The big problem, obviously, for them is they're going to be without Kane for what looks like the rest of the season. Did you see evidence from them on Saturday, Charlie, that they had enough about them to get by without Kane? Well, they've won the last five without Kane. Um, and Do they even need Kane? <laughs> well, and Son has scored nine and ten when Kane hasn't played this season. Wow. Eight starts. So, I mean, he seems to shoulder that burden. Did he have more of the ball? Did he have more to do with how they were attacking? Well, he barely played hmm. on the weekend. Oh, he, he came on late. I mean, it was Mora who was kind of the main... It's one of those games, it's, it's really hard to draw any conclusions because Huddersfield was so bad. Um, hey, hey. But I think... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I remember that. Terence uh, <laughs> Huddersfield. Um, but, but I think that broader picture, that those you know five wins without him, um, suggests they can function. They do play in a different way. That said, he is so, so good that to lose him is a blow. And also, it's more to the point, I think they have, they certainly have a way of playing without him, but if that doesn't work, then they're down, they're down to kind of their plan C, and, uh, which is probably Llorente, who missed a lot of chances on the weekend. But he's also quite good. He played well. He held the ball up. Mm. But, I mean, again... It's a good passe, takes defenders away. Yeah. But I know what you mean. He's not exactly the kind of guy that you want to rely on for scoring goals because he has a habit of squandering chances. But I think it's interesting because Kane, to me, is a little bit like Ronaldo at Juve. You know, it's a bit like when he's on the pitch, you sort of just think to yourself, it's all right, he'll sort it out. You know, Mm. whereas for some reason, when he's not there, it's like the supporting cars come into action and they all just start producing, you know, brilliance, really, especially Son. And um, whether it's him or whether it's Lucas Moura, everyone seems to just step up and start trying to do something in the game and be the hero, whatever it is. And it's almost like when Kane's there, they just think he's so good that he can mm. resolve every situation. Um, 
it's interesting because I thought Mora has been such a great player for them this season, especially. I think he offers such a direct threat in much the same way that Son can as well. And his, it's strange, I know, because it's Huddersfield and I do love Huddersfield, but they, God, God help them when it comes to defending, you know. It's just his, you look at him and you think to yourself, like, it's amazing that he's not yet a recognised, like, star, that is, this is his first real season in playing, like, constant football for a big you know I mean at PSG I just felt like he was an afterthought he's so talented going forward his feet his vision the way that he can dribble through always head up always understands where to go great finisher if you just play him a little bit more with Son and this could be a chance to put it all together I know Llorente is not going to be the guy who gets you all the goals but he is very good at holding the ball up he is good at delivering a pass Um, and he just you know with his presence it feels like centre-backs will be drawn to him to create spaces for the likes of Son and Mora. Yeah, fantastic hat-trick for him. Perhaps he has a big part to play in the run-in for Spurs. What about Manchester United, Sam? Not entirely convincing in their win against West Ham. They were really pouring players forward in this one. Did they underestimate West Ham? I think they played pretty badly again. I mean, it's not for the first time in the last few weeks that United have looked really quite poor. And I think it's interesting how the the language has really shifted with Solskjaer. I mean, when he first got there, took over in December, a lot of the talk was, he was saying, I'm really happy with the team. I'm happy with who I've got. The players I've got are, you know, they're good enough to achieve what I want. And in the last few weeks, suddenly, you know, the, the, it's clear that United are now going to have to push for an overhaul of their squad. And ever since he got given that job permanently, it's been pretty clear that they're going to make up to five pretty big signings. And you look at it and think, I don't know whether that's Solskjaer, whether that's just like, the impact of his arrival and the way they just lifted the mood in post Mourinho that everyone just got happier and felt better as a result and now they're reverting back to what they actually are or whether it's more a reflection of Solskjaer being unable to keep the same momentum going because it does seem like they've really lost some and I know they won and Bob got two penalties but they, I mean there were so many chances for West Ham in that game and they really did struggle and they were sliced open quite a few times and you look at it and think I'm not sure they're there I'm not sure they're going to get top four at all I, I, I think they're going to be some distance off top four by the end of this rate I mean and also they're going to get battered by Barcelona in midweek as well and they, they struggled against Barcelona last week I just see it just seems to be fizzing out a bit and I know that seems very dramatic and very reactionary after a few results but the way that the language has shifted suggests to me that Solskjaer sees problems too two words for you on Solskjaer holiday romance standing by those words <laughs> uh, what about Chelsea? Their fans have been clamouring for Loftus-Cheek and Hudson-Odoi to start didn't do a whole lot together against Liverpool there's a lot of goodwill towards those. And I, I mean, Sarri, I, I found it a bit frustrating because I think a lot of what he said has actually been quite sensible. Um, he's just done it. I don't think he's communicated it that sensitively. <laughs> he's so blunt. But, he's he's so amazingly blunt. But, but what he said after, like when Hudson-Odoi gave like a 7 out of 10 performance against Montenegro and everyone was like, take that, Sarri. Like, <laughs> see, he showed you. It's like, I'm sure Sarri's aware that against Montenegro, Hudson-Odoi can put in a decent mm. performance. You yeah, know? that's such a good point. But he said, but then he, you know, he then said like, oh yeah, I didn't watch the game, whatever. And so I think like he really hasn't won that PR battle. But... <laughs> He does, you know, he, hudson Odoi has had a lot of minutes this season. He's basically played the whole Europa League run um, and he started to get some league games. So I can see why there's a bit of frustration almost on his part. Um, and also, as fans, you do, for whatever reason, there are certain players who you let get away with anything. You know, if they're young and English, um, they have a lot of leeway. But they haven't, and certainly yesterday, didn't really stake much of a claim. I thought Loftus-Cheek was actually quite poor. And I think when I've seen him... A lot of the season he struggles to influence games. 
Um, and he's also not that young. You know, Hudson Adoy is. He's got plenty of time. Um, Dr. Chief's quite young in terms of games played. He, uh, yeah. he, he, How old he, is he? But he's what, like 23? Yeah. Okay. But he, he spent so he spent so much of his of his like uh, so much time injured A and so much time not playing for Chelsea B. And obviously he went to Crystal Palace on loan and that was his first sort of chance of playing regularly. And he got the England team for the World Cup. So mm. he's he's old he's older in age than he is on like actual first team experience, if that makes sense. Same yeah. for me actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do feel like it, it's weird because I don't know whether I don't know what it is about Maurizio Sarri, but he seems to rob people the wrong way. And Did he in Italy? No, God, he's God in Italy. Hmm. Uh, and I don't think he cares either way. Like, he doesn't care if he's God and he doesn't care if people hate him. Is that, he a, seems... is that a cultural difference or something? Like, is it, is it easier to be that blunt? Uh, uh, do, we, do we see the manager very differently here? Why is it that it, it worked in Italy and hasn't here? It's interesting, actually, you say that, because I think, like, Carlo Ancelotti does care about being liked. Um, I think that there... I, I don't think that's a cultural thing. I think that's more to do with the fact that he grew up his whole life being a professional executive, which, you know, meant, like, you know, let's just hit targets and get commission and whatever it is. And... Um, and then he's finally gotten the job of his dreams. And he's just like, I'm not going to let anyone ruin this. And he's very much like matter of fact, you know, like, yeah, like I just remember when he took on the Napoli job. He's like, yeah, I told Iguain he's a little bit fat. He needs to work on it. And <laughs> and it was just so like, he, it was almost interesting. He's not you, polished. Yeah, he's, he's not polished, yeah. which you do get a lot actually in Italy. There are a lot of guys who are not that very media savvy. You know, you get called all sorts of names, you know. Um, but he's just that kind of guy just doesn't just says it as it is because he feels like if he's truthful and honest, there's more chance that his team will success, will succeed. Sometimes he doesn't realize that people are sensitive to all of this. But he's, you know, there's just all this pressure on, you know, like playing Hudson Odoi, who I just thought, like, for example, yesterday, if you are going to play with Hazard, then you have to and Hazard's out on the wing to try to deliver into the box and someone's got to be in the box, mm. you know? And and I get that there are probably instructions that Sadie's given, which is, you know, stay wide or whatever it is, but you also have to read the game and adapt to your own. So if you're seeing that there's no one around you and there's all this empty space and, and, and Hazard's on the wing, push yourself into the box, you know, take these opportunities because that was a big game and to be offered that chance, you need to take that opportunity. And yet... He could, I, in my feeling is, is that he could not perform to his best for the next, I don't know, four or five games, but it will still be Sadi who's going to be blamed for not getting the best out of him. I was talking to an Italian journalist last week at the Napoli Arsenal press conference, and he was saying that because Ancelotti is so loved in Italy, nobody's mentioning the fact that they're 17 points behind Juve in the, ta- in the table, whereas if it was Sarri in charge, 17 points behind, they would say he would, get, he would be getting absolutely battered by the media because... He's not seen as this, you know, icon of Italian Italian football. Uh, here's one thing. Also, I think what was really annoying to everyone back in Italy was, although his football is considered iconic in comparison to how much, you know, how much abuse is held towards Allegri, despite the fact that he's done so much at Juventus. The cases with that is that Ancelotti has actually tried to do something in Europe. And it doesn't matter because it's like they they had such a good run in Champions League. They were just unlucky. They're trying now in the Europa League and reaching far. Sadi just seemed to have this disdain for everything that wasn't, mm. you know, like, let's just push for the Scudetto. And you know you're not going to have that with Juventus on board. So it's a case of, like, Ancelotti's trying to use the whole team, trying to, you know, make everyone a little bit happier. So Sadi was, I think, a little bit... 
stubborn in his manner of who he played and, and never seemed to really want to rotate, which is kind of a little bit like, you know, the problems that he has in, in England. But in terms of the big guys, the revolutionaries, the Eriko Sakis, Sadi comes first before anyone. But that's the thing with Sadi, and I find it slightly disingenuous when Chelsea complain about him being stubborn and inflexible. That, that you knew what you were signing up for with him. I don't think he came under false pretenses. He said, you know, this is his way of playing and this is what you're going to get. And really that needs to take, that will take a few years. And that's why I think Chelsea's such a bad fit because they are not a club that are going to give you a few years to bed in. But I, I feel like that was the issue with Conte too. Like you, you would never buy Conte and say to him, we're not going to buy you any star players for the next three years. For all he talked about at Juventus was, I want the top player. Yeah, so he was never going to be, he was just never going to be the guy who's like, wins you the league and then is happy with you just selling the team. Like, you know, when you buy Conte that he wants talent and he wants expensive talent, you know. But I think Conte was a better fit in the short term, at least in that he's more pragmatic and at least is just a winner and will do whatever it takes to win. Like in that way, him and Chelsea kind of chimed. But this is what I mean. It's like Pep Guardiola arrived at Manchester City with a club that was built for him Mm. and needed time to really himself so I don't really understand why there's I mean look I'm not a huge fan of Sadi myself just because I'm not a huge fan of philosophers I much prefer pragmatic uh, tactics and tacticians but in the sense that if you are going to bring him then of course it's going to take you ages especially with a team that that really only has like the type of Hazard and perhaps Jorginho who are to his liking. The other team in the shake-up for the Champions League are Arsenal they play Watford on Monday night, are Watford the sort of team that are going to cause Arsenal problems or is the fact that it's an away game going to be hard enough for Arsenal as it is? Uh, <laughs> yes, to, fun, to, to both those questions. Um, <laughs> Watford are going to cause them a lot of problems indeed, uh, particularly because Socrates is suspended and he's sort of the one player you'd look at as the guy to try and shackle Troy Deeney. So I can uh, envisage them having multiple problems this evening um, and they're going to have to like, dramatically improve their recent away performances to get anything and that's you know to get even a draw they have to improve massively I mean their, their best away win in the league this season has been against Bournemouth and that says it all really and to beat Watford would be their comfortably their best away result of the year in the league well let's take the lead from Sam there and start talking about Bournemouth Brighton absolutely battered by Bournemouth on Saturday Brighton now very much in the relegation battle is it all going to go down to that game they play against Cardiff no Oh, I don't yeah. think so. Brighton are playing Wolves, Spurs, Arsenal, and Man City still. Mm. Like Brighton could easily win this and then still go down. Uh, I know. That, I know there's a decent gap of points between them and Cardiff, and they're not like level on points. Now, a win would take them eight clear, wouldn't it? I mean, that would be if Brighton were to beat Cardiff. Yeah, Brighton might not get yeah. any more points. But they may not say that was necessarily. Would Cardiff get more than eight in their remaining three or four. I mean, that would be quite a turnaround for them. Cardiff could easily have had six in the last two games if, yeah. referees, if, were if, the, ref, if the referees weren't being like, mm. so incompetent. I'm, I really don't believe in conspiracy theories. I believe referees are trying to do the best mm. job possible. But you, you would be thinking they do not want us in the Premier League based on the last few games if you're a Cardiff supporter. How no, do you explain those decisions at Burnley? Someone's just like, who's the best person to wind up the referee decisions? Neil Warnock. Let's, <laughs> let's see what happens. Hilarious. Yeah. Let's poke the bear. That's, it, is, it, is, it is incredible. I mean, the one, the handball one against Burnley at the weekend, I, I don't think, like, how could that? Like, 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 There's what, like three. Like, I mean, what, just give one. You know? Yeah, just give one at least. But like, and then also there was the, the penalty with Charlie Taylor sliding in as well. Like, it's, it's actually ludicrous. There's been about five in a row there. Like, horrific decisions they've got on the wrong side of. You look at it and just think, you know the 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 footballing gods are very much against them on that, but but it, does that even itself out over the course? Of the season? <laughs> <laughs> I think it does. It certainly has. Maybe next season. Southampton have three wins in their last four, almost certainly safe now. 
getting it done against Wolves at the weekend. Is this just a sign of their quality, do we think, ultimately, Mina? They haven't been much cop, really, this season overall, but they've just got enough about them to pull it together when it matters at the end. Southampton. Mm. I think it's just... Um, I think Hassan Hutel has just been absolutely the right man mm. for the job, and he's just gotten them playing. At the time, you know, when you are fighting relegation and you're trying to pull the team together, the best thing to do is go for courageous tactics, which is what Solskjaer did at Manchester United, which is really what a, what a new manager should come in and do. And that's what they are. They're always attacking with three men. They're always pressing, always moving, always seem to have a lot of energy at the right time because this is the last season push in which you hope that your players are at their fittest and at their best capable of really fighting until the end. And that's what they've got right now. Meanwhile, you look at Wolves and they fail to win in their last five games away from Molyneux. And it just seems like they have a little bit of a hangover at the moment, obviously, after what happened in the FA Cup. But it's just, a, you know, this is what I love so much about House and People always talked about Nagelsmann, but he's the kind of guy that really knows how to communicate with his players and motivate them to try to give every inch of their soul to, to the game. Yeah, he seems to have a lot of buy-in down there it, on the it, South Coast from his he, players. He makes you wonder a little. I mean, they veered away from, I think they were burned um, by Claude Puel and then... Who is his successor? Pellegrino. No. Yeah, Pellegrino. so he kind of had Pellegrino, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and that didn't work. And then I think they were a bit spooked by that. And were like, we better go down the sort of Mark Hughes proper football man route. And I think now they've gone back to a bit more of an exciting, inventive appointment in Hassan Hutton. And it's really paid off. Mark Nathan Hughes. Redmond uh, mm. had scored zero goals before Hassan Hutton was appointed. He's since scored eight. There you go. The Hassan Hutton effect. Fulham stopped Everton's good run of form. Would you be a bit frustrated if you're a Fulham fan, Charlie, suddenly seeing this competent team emerge after being relegated? Yeah, that happens quite often, actually. You kind of have a little bit of bounce. Not in Huddersfield's case, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) that that will happen, I'm sure. One day. Yeah, you would, although you might just be a bit encouraged that next season might not be a complete disaster. I mean, you hope... At least it feels with Scott Parker in that there seems to be some planning and some kind of coherent uh, thought to what they're doing, whereas I think for most of the season it just looked like no one really had a clue what they were doing. To be honest, I'd be really frustrated if I was an Everton fan. Like, what is this Mm. team? I have no understanding of it. You know, they're either amazing and, you know, not conceding and keeping clean sheets and all of a sudden capable, you know, with Richarlson and uh, Calvert-Lewin. And then at the other time... They just look like they're a side that, you know, you're just a little bit physical with them and they capitulate on the pitch. So if I was Everton right now, I'd be trying to ask my team questions like, why is this inconsistency continuing? Yeah, it's odd, it's odd with them, actually, because they'd had that terrible run against big six teams. Yeah. And then they beat Chelsea and Arsenal. And then it's against the the so-called lesser teams. That and they managed a good draw against Liverpool. Andrew Liverpool, yeah. An enigma wrapped in a riddle. <laughs> <laughs> Listening to the Telegraph Audio Football Club, part of the Telegraph Podcasting Network. To find more of our podcasts, just go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Let's take a brief diversion from proper football chat and re-explore Dino's Fun Bag, the beloved segment from the podcast in which we roll a die to determine what esoteric topic we're going to discuss this week. We've got six possible options. I'm going to roll the die now. Ooh. It's a three. Ooh. And the question is, is there too much ball variation? Sam Dean, over to you. <laughs> I have very strong opinions on this. Yes, good. What's ball variation? Okay, for example, mm-hmm. after about 10 games of the season, the Premier League brings out the yellow ball rather than it, it, it puts the white ball away and brings right. the yellow ball. And that really annoys me because it's just a marketing ploy. A ball should never be yellow. A ball should be white unless it's snowing, mm-hmm. in which case the ball could be orange. Uh, it's a marketing ploy. And also the yellow ball I associate with the arrival of winter. 
And then when the white ball comes back, it's like, oh, Springs on the way, which is nice. So that 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 shouldn't be a thing. And also, Champions League this year, they had a, they've got they've had a blue ball in the group stage, like an actual blue ball with white paneling, and now they've got a red ball in the knockout stage. It's like the ball should be white. There's too much sort of fiddling around with it. People aren't just why do people have to change all these things? They can't be happy with just a white football. Why do you need to? I don't know. I mean, why can't Pogba be happy with a normal haircut? You know, because life is all about variation. And what about World Cup balls? <laughs> Where do you stand on that? I don't, I don't mind a World Cup final specific ball because sometimes they have like a golden plate in the mm. World Cup final. And they, this year, I think they changed it for knockout stages, group stages and for the final, which I think is probably one ball too many. But, uh, but generally speaking, <laughs> a World Cup final ball being specific, I'm happy with. But it should always be white. Would you like every ball to be the sort of default football with the white panels and the black panels? Would that make you happy, Sam? Is that what you want? Oh, the, the, the classic sort of comic book. The, seven, the 70s, 70s ball. I would quite like that. I mean, you know, someone like, you know, the old Tango ball. Oh, that would be quite nice, like, the, the classic one. If it ain't broke, right. don't fix Change, it. Change.org, mate. I look forward to it. <laughs> 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 petition beginning. Let's look back upon the Champions League now. Big win for Tottenham Hotspur against Manchester City. Mina, what is the big reason behind Pep's uneven Champions League form? What, what's, what have City got in common with Bayern? Um, not much. I think that there was a difference in the sense that with Bayern... <laughs> That there was just a genuine lack of balance. Uh, I, I just feel like with Pep, it's really strange, you know, that all the articles written is about the fact that he seems to overthink every move, you know. I, I just think that he's the kind of guy who, I'll be honest, he was at his best when he was collaborating with somebody. And when he was collaborating with Tito Villanova for Bar- Barcelona, he had ideas to bounce off. They worked together. They created ideas on the on the ball and off the ball. And I think that's why we saw the the best Barcelona. Ever since then, it's been all on him sort of thing. And I feel like perhaps he doesn't really have that person right now that he can bounce ideas off in the same way that Villanova offered this different inside and different ways of looking at things. With Bayern, it was a case of any time you look, you just ran at them. They seemed to just capitulate on the pitch defensively. It was all horribly wrong. I still think that, I mean, they conceded, what, five and six goals in the first two semifinals um, against Real Madrid and Barcelona. And then also lost to Atletico in the third one. I think it's a case of he sometimes lacks balance or tries too hard to find it. His plan A is is brilliant and it does require everyone to be at their best, finding their ways and going through. But sometimes when he needs a plan B, which he does have in the sense that he they can play counter-attacking football, but if just one or two of them are not at their very highest level, then I feel like there are gaps to exploit, especially if they're facing sides that do always hurt Pep sides, which are direct, um, physical. And this is another thing about Spurs. He tried to engage in a physical battle where he used to condemn Real Madrid for just being a bunch of athletes. So it's like, well, what what is it you want? So I I feel like when it comes to Champions League, he's a little bit unsure of how to navigate through the, the balance question. You know, how do I achieve positive, you know, attacking play as well as achieving, you know, defence. And this time around, he chose to do it with two defensive midfielders, but it just created a burden. It definitely felt like he was spooked by the Liverpool game last season and by the by Munich Real Madrid capitulations and the Barcelona capitulations last week against Spurs because you looked at that and you thought, City, if that's a league game, City would go there and you'd be pretty confident they'd win or at least draw. And then even when they went 1-0 down, it wasn't like, right, let's get an equaliser. And I get that. Because, you know, 
obviously, 2-0 is worse. But it just felt like he was terrified of having another, of being out of it again after the first leg. Not, um, not a terrible result, though, is it, to go back to their place 1-0 no. down? I wonder if it's a... I mean, I, I, I still think that they have enough to, to win over Spurs, I agree. to be honest. I, I wonder if it's a flexibility thing where they City always know how they're going to play in the league and they are regimented like to the finest detail on how to do that. So when he changes it in the Champions League, because he has to, because they're playing against the best teams over two legs... For example, playing four two three one rather than four three three. When he changes it, that is naturally really unfamiliar for the players. They are so used to playing a certain way and being a certain position. Like De Bruyne knows where he needs to be on the right of a midfield three because he's been so well trained in doing that. But when that's different, it's not natural for them. They're not as naturally flexible or malleable as certain teams. You look at Real Madrid, obviously, they've pretty much owned the Champions League for the last few years. That was a flexible team. They didn't have a regimented style of play. They were they could, they could play different ways and they could attack in different systems. Whereas cause, because Pep's team, and this goes back to Bayern Munich as well, are so well drilled on that one style of play or that one formation, which is so meticulous. When you try and change that even a little bit, it becomes foreign for the players and they haven't got time or any sort of chance to adapt to it. And See, I think compounding is... that is that is a slight initiative deficit on the part of the Man City players, whereby I don't I don't think enough I think a lot of them are reliant on those formulas and those systems that they can execute really well. And I do think that team, if it lacks something, it's maybe a little bit of personality, someone who is able to really, you know, just lift them even when you know, okay, the formula's broken down and it falls down to the players and they can't just rely on Guardiola to, you know, to micromanage them, which he does to such a crazy extent. But this is why it's interesting because, you know, I, I remember at Juventus under Conte, we used to think he's micromanaging everything. So if they weren't, a, if he changed something very small, they would keep having to look at him at the sidelines because then he would need to shout out instructions. And then you have somebody like Allegri who every week or so will change the formation to make you flexible. And I think that's interesting. That's a perfect um reason Sam in the sense that when you have like you know Sir Alex Ferguson who played one way in the Premier League and a different way in the Champions League and gets people used to changing everything up then it gives you an impetus to win and it gives you that ability to flex or change according to what the opponent is doing but when you are very one drilled in one scheme I think it becomes harder but he is so hell-bent on this one scheme working that sometimes it's going to cause problems. Well, that because that begs the question. I know Rafa Benitez, what he used to do during those Liverpool Champions League runs is he would test out different formations. different formations and things like that. He would also withhold quite a lot of things as well from opponents, but he would be thinking, and as you say, that was Sir Alex Ferguson's gift, he would be planning weeks, months in advance. I wonder, Guardiola, does he then, should he then try out some of these things in advance. But then he got criticised at the time when he would try to move players in different positions, you know, when he was trying to put uh, at Bayern Munich, you know, Alaba further forward mm. or tries to... He would get criticised for trying to not play players in the positions that they know how. I think the question is not moving the players, it's just allowing the scheme to develop or, or the tactics to change and bend according to what the opponent is expecting. The other three ties are Manchester United going to Barcelona, Juve hosting Ajax, Liverpool off to Porto. Can we see any outcome other than Barcelona, Liverpool and Juventus in the semi-finals? I think Ajax could. I mean, of those, you know, obviously that's the the one that stands out because uh, it was a first leg draw. It was a first leg draw. Uh, they... You think City will win? They lost. <laughs> no, I don't. I think Spurs will go through that oh, time. Do you? Yeah, I actually do. I think um, I can see Spurs scoring and City being really spooked and it all just kind of unraveling again. Oh wow! Um, and Ajax, I think, well, a it was a first leg draw, and mm. b they've. Show you know against Real Madrid they lost the first leg at home and then went and um, and won away so I think it's uh, it's within their abilities. One word, Ronaldo. 
Yeah. And also, I, you know what it is? I was really spooked, Two actually. Words, do <laughs> <laughs> he might be injured and might not be available. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I just think you're hoping now that this happens. Um, I don't know. For me, it's like they, they do so well on the pitch and then they just start shooting from all different angles. And you're like, guys, just keep the ball and pass to a better option. That was the only thing that for me, Ajax, they just they force the issue too much. Hello, I'm Brian Moore and I'm the host of Brian Moore's Full Contact. Each week we get the biggest and best names from the world of rugby to dive into every ruck, mall and TMO decision. No-nonsense analysis covering the Six Nations, the World Cup, the Premiership, Pro 14, Premier 15s and everything in between. Search for Brian Moore's Full Contact on your podcast provider. Hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss out and every Tuesday morning we will be there ready for your commute to work. That's Brian Moore's Full Contact, available from wherever you download your podcasts. Ring the alarm. It's the sound of a song for Europe featuring your friend of mine, Mina Rizuki. Mina, Bundesliga title race, still very exciting. Dortmund, great result for them. Two goals for Sancho. Meanwhile, at Bayern, Lewandowski and Komen had a fist fight in training. What do we know about this? I know. It's probably Lewandowski saying you don't pass the ball enough to me. Oh. Um, <laughs> okay, so let's just start off with Dortmund 1-2-1 over Mainz, which was a big game. It could have potentially been a banana skin, but Sancho is amazing now. 10 goals, 13 assists. I think the youngest player to ever done that in the Bundesliga. Um, as for Bayern, this is really interesting because there was this punch-up and apparently, you know, there was just all this whispers and aggro, you know, towards one another. This was all according to Build. And then it led into a fist fight because Kingsley Coman seemed to take something to heart and basically went over there to hit him. And then they had to be <laughs> broken out. And what's really bizarre about all this is Nico Kovash didn't send them to the dressing room and, you know, learn your lesson and think about what you've done. He just sort of let it all go on. And then in the press conference, he was asked about it. And he was like, yes, I can confirm that there was a fight, but it's fine. No one's punished. No one's going to have any fines to pay. It's all, it's all moving very swift. It just means we're alive. I want to know what the German is. Yeah, quite. I want to know what the German is for. These things happen on every single training ground up and down the country every day of the week. That's what I'd be disappointed if they didn't happen. Yeah, exactly. yeah. It is what it is, I would say. <laughs> yeah. uh, what about in uh, Milan, Mina? Some, some shirt-swapping fun. What happened between Bakayoko and Ekerbi there? So, Acherbi, do you remember the one we were talking Acherbi, about, sorry. guys? Who... Oh, <laughs> no, it's okay. When we were talking about one of the questions about players who've come back from, like, big ordeals. He's one who fought cancer twice and uh, is the defender for Lazio. Anyway, basically, he stupidly said on, on social media before um, the game's that he thought man for man Lazio were better than Milan. And obviously Milan took offence to that, especially Frank Kessi and uh, Bakayoko. And so at the end, you know, Milan won. There was some very controversial refereeing decisions. Lazio were really aggrieved by all of this. But towards the end, like, you know, Achebe realised that Milan were, you know, unimpressed. So he went and swapped shirts with Bakayoko because he said he wanted to just end everything on a nice note. Instead, they took the jersey and basically paraded it in front of their own fans to laugh at Lazio's humiliation. And it's just like, this has stirred so much controversy in Italy because it was a shame for the sport and for the children who are watching. But Anna Cherby's like, I'm so disappointed that this is what they used my shirt jersey for. But it's, and they've come out and they've apologized, Frank Kessie and Bakayoko, for holding up the trophy of a Cherby's shirt to laugh at Lazio. But 
This is precisely the sort of beef I want from my song for Europe. Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is really... This in Italy is just drama. Yeah. Top <laughs> Syria, have fun. Finally, Barcelona rested just about everyone and drew nil all at Huesca. Juve, thank you. Juve <laughs> did similar, lost to Spal. Oh, yeah. It strikes me that the English clubs in the Champions League don't have this luxury. They can't rest all of their players and uh, just forget about the league temporarily. Does this strategy actually work, Mina? Does Spanish and Italian clubs go into the Champions League second legs rested and uh, and does, is that borne out or would you rather the, the players are staying fresh? Okay, one question. How many points did City finish at the top last season? Many. Circa 19. 20. <laughs> and how many at the stage of the season? It was 16. So... Not that much different, mm. yeah. Um, I Another thing is that I just feel like with English sides, they do have sort of the revenue that affords the squad depth to allow rotation um, in the sense that Juventus, I don't think, have even made the top 10 in terms of revenues in the Forbes rich list. Um, having said all of these things, PSG always well-rested. What did they do in the Champions League? Very little, you know. And a, a case of sometimes you do need competition and healthy competition. And I think Barcelona have benefited from always having a strong Real Madrid and a strong, a strong Atletico Madrid. Even if it does seem that it's rather easy how it is to to win league titles, it isn't actually in Bar- in uh, in Spain. So I think they've benefited from that to always have that competition, to always be slightly motivated because. When you switch off because you're that much better than your opponents, like City were perhaps last season, like Juventus are well, the last eight seasons, then it's very difficult to switch it back on for the games that matter, especially if you're facing a great opponent. And that was a thing often linked to Guardiola's failures in Europe was that uh, at Bayern Munich and then at City last season, he would av- be averaging a domestic lead of like 15 to 20 points. And that was seen as one of the reasons that they hadn't had the intensity um, going into those big games. I also just want to make the point I've been making for a while. This this issue you have of Premier League managers complaining about TV schedules, you cannot take the ludicrous revenues and then complain when those companies mess you about. That is the reason they're at such an advantage compared to everyone in Europe. The disadvantage is by signing over the rights to say they can play you whenever they want, they will do that. And that's why Arsenal are ludicrously playing on a Monday night tonight. Why it is crazy? Why, why Chelsea and uh, Liverpool played yesterday uh, when no other team in Europe is doing that? But that's the deal they made. But it is all for the money. Exactly. That's football. That's your lot for this week's Audio Football Club. Don't forget you can contact me on Twitter if you would like to. It's at Tom with an H Gibbs. The email address for the podcast it exists. You can email it. We'll read out the best of what you send us. I'll tell you the address. It's afcpodcast.telegraph.co.uk. Thanks very much in advance for all the excellent stuff you're going to send us in the coming seven days. Don't forget to subscribe to Telegraph Audio Football Club if you haven't already. Just look for Audio Football Club where you get your podcasts. We'll have a new episode for you every Monday afternoon, probably about 4pm. Thanks to Joel Grove on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. 
a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.